Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. And welcome back to Micromobility. How are you today, Horace? I am well, and thankfully so. Yes, excellent. Lockdown in, uh, in Boston, I see. Yes, in, in the Boston area, north of it. It's actually a suburban area, so it's actually relatively calm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good to hear. I hear that just today, Trump has tweeted out that he's considering putting a quarantine on New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey because of the limits there. Which, of course, if you know, you follow game theory, it's like everybody is just like, if you're considering it, I'm getting out now. <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't understand. A lot of there's a lot of strange behaviors by not just politicians, but I think like uh, actually this is a similar story in in Finland. My wife is there and my son is there, and they tell me that the county or region that includes Helsinki is now being blockaded by the other neighboring counties. So it's kind of like people are acting very unneighborly, like. So it's not a police thing. It's just people in the neighborhood saying you can't come in. To be honest, I don't want to know. I find these things so distasteful that it ruins my belief in humanity if I read too much of that and sort of you, you, you end up being very jaded. So I'd rather just say, hey, just people behaving badly, people allowing their rather bad versions of themselves to come forward. And it's just... It's unbecoming, and you just hope that someday, like bad children, you know, like children behaving badly, they're going to see the error of their ways, and we can forgive them. But that right now, there's 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 a lot of that going on. I think in some ways, it's an interesting reflection on whether or not people see the world as a positive summer and a zero-sum world. But anyway, that's not the reason for this episode. What I wanted to do with this episode is you have mentioned in the past that you've been reading Nassim Nicholas Taleb and, and his ideas around fragility, anti-fragility, and black swans. I've read all of Taleb's books since 2006 when when I was given The Black Swan as part of a class and read it and thought it was amazing and, and has really influenced a lot of my ideas around... Well, in part, it's actually why I ended up reading you right in the very beginning. I was looking for anything that was asymmetric. You know, his ideas around asymmetry, especially in terms of investment returns, etc., were what had originally led me to your work and, and others as well, or disruptive innovation in general. And so I had been trying to get you to read the Taleb for a while, thinking that you would probably find his ideas interesting. And now you seem to have done it. So I thought maybe what we could do is have a discussion about that. Yeah, I actually followed him. Oh, so people have been mentioning it to me for some time. And I'm always like a little bit almost worried about falling into a trap when someone has what is called a polemical attitude. And polemical means that you have, in a very simple way, explained something very complex. And therefore, you seem to have easy answers to difficult problems. And so polemicists are people who tend to be very sure of themselves, and they seem to lead a lot of people to follow them, even though they're probably wrong. And you have a lot of bad leadership this way. I understand Taleb's not a politician. He's not out there 
evangelizing things, but he he has an idea like Christensen, which is very, very attractive. I'm worried about the seduction power of that idea. I tend to take it in small pieces and, and I, I tend to listen around the story. I listen to other people talk about it as much as the author because I want to ha I want to get second and third opinions on something that is potentially so profound. And as Christensen, which of course he, he built upon others as well as, as Schumpeter before him, as the great academic or non-academic thinkers in economics, Keynes and, and what was it who said the invisible hand, blanking out on the... Adam Smith. Smith, yes. So you have these great breakthroughs in thinking. Now, here, let me paraphrase or let me try to capture Taleb's points of view here in, in a very, my way of thinking about him. So he he's an options, he began life, he has a peculiar background, by the way, he's, he's Lebanese, but he's Christian. He speaks multiple languages. He studied in, I believe he, he did his PhD in French, in France, and he's a mathematician, and yet he's a sort of poetical person as well. He has a very kind of very... He describes himself as a flaneur. A flaneur is a very interesting word in its own right, because it's a person who, another French term for this flaneur is boulevardier, is a person who walks on the boulevard for the pleasure of walking on the boulevard. There is no purpose necessarily to his journey, his, his, his ambling around. And, and a flaneur is one who, who samples the world without a purpose, without a direction, like the opposite of a tourist. A tourist is on a, on a guided path, and anything that derails them on that path is cause for concern. But anything that derails a flaneur is a cause for celebration because they're suddenly onto a new thing. So he's very, very, he's very eclectic, what used to be called the, the Renaissance man. He's a multiple talent in multiple areas and self-taught mainly. And on top of that, okay, that's a bit of background. On top of that, then he brings a very interesting mathematical perspective on the world, which again, I thought Christensen did as well. Hold up, just really quickly. So he did that and then he became an options trader. He made a giant fortune in 1987 and then subsequently became the head of risk engineering at NYU. This is also background for people who, who who like have no concept of who we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, so, so he's been a trader. He made a ton of money. Then he's been actually running funds or being a senior person in, in large funds for a various uh, number of years. He's actually financially independent and has decided to, after all that, become a writer, to become a scholar. He, in fact, proposes to people that you should, you should get a real job. If you're still interested in history or the arts, you should do those after you've made a fortune as a hobby, as something that you do not in a financially dependent way. He's got a lot of these weird ideas, but let, let me just focus, try to get, it's easy to get derailed with him because he intentionally derails you. But the, the thing that, that he brings, he brings also mathematical rigor. He is well-trained in mathematics, particularly probability theory. He used that mathematics specifically to do options trading in a very successful way. So he's kind of made money off of math, a very rare thing indeed. And he's also been doing so betting against people. If you think about it, that's what an option trader is. It tends to be a zero-sum game they play. And so he has to somehow really outwit a lot of people to win. And yet, so to be able to outwit people, you also have to sort of outwit them, not just in an intellectual way, you have to outwit them psychologically because a lot of people 
will be sort of cleverer than you, if not smarter than you. So there's a lot going on in his approach to just in that in that profession he had for a while. And then he quit and then he decided to be a writer and to be a professor and to be a speaker and a bon vivant, you know, an enjoyer of life. Let's focus on, on the key thesis, though. The key thesis is that we are engineered, perhaps, and that is we have evolved to look at risk in ways that are not the way the world works. Furthermore, we've had that instinct perhaps, let's say, not to understand nonlinearity. We've had that instinct amplified by, by institutions, and that includes education, that tell us to behave in a certain way that makes us even more blind to the reality. And in fact, those who are less educated about the sciences and, and the academic world, those who are less educated have better intuitions than those who are educated. That's one of his theses. Yeah, he frames it up as the competition between well, intellectuals yet idiots, so people who are very educated but idiots. Yes, he can, there's a lot of name calling, and there's another weird thing about him. He's very he he's very insulting. He's very improper on purpose, by the way, as I came to know later. Oh, has he tried to hit you on Twitter before? No, 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 not at all. No, what I've seen is conversations between him and others on Twitter. I haven't involved or, or, or tagged him or anything like that. I'm not sure I'm ready to. But the point is that he says that's part of having skin in the game. He says, if, if you are polite, you're really not honest. If you are polite about, you know, and you think somebody's wrong, you should call them names. Because if you are yourself wrong, then you will suffer the shame and, and you should be punished for having insulted someone else and having accused someone else. So he believes that polite society in particular just never gets to the truth. And so it's not that he's naturally sociopathic. He's just, he believes that in the pursuit of truth, you must stand up and say that person's an idiot, not just respectfully so, you must literally be insulting someone, which is, again, a very extreme point of view. And so a lot of his things is a very polemic, that's a typical polemical thing to do. So so this is why I'm, I'm also kind of a little bit reluctant to engage. But let me let me just step into, uh, these are all anecdotes. The really interesting observation, the really interesting observation, if I may just do it as a sort of a, a simple mathematical visualization, if you will, a conceptual idea. It's like, imagine you make a little bit of money every day and you do so either, let's say, through gaining interest rates, you know, like you're getting a, a little bit of 1% interest on your money or, or even having a job. And, you know, you give up quite a bit of your time with your full-time job, you give up a lot of opportunity because you could be doing something else, but you love to have that paycheck every month and you love to have stability because you've also hitched your wagon to a lot of things that require you to pay things on a monthly basis. So you've got your mortgage and you've got your, all these bills and all these things. They're all requiring constant payment, so you need constant income. And you, you think the world can be somehow balanced on a monthly basis. But then, occasionally, a very bad thing may happen, and that bad thing could wipe out all the gains you've made, and you have a catastrophe that was unforeseen for you, but maybe, maybe if you step back far enough, you'll see that, of course, it was bound to happen, right? I mean, in some ways, the intuition of most people who are not educated, who are not getting a salary, and I'm talking about the ancient people, you know, they, they always thought, well, we, 
yes, let's say you're a farmer. You might have a year when the crops fail. You might have natural disasters. You may have droughts and you may have floods and you may have frosts and all these things that do happen occasionally. And so your life isn't going to be about really always getting an income every month. It's more like, okay, let's save up for the potential really bad situation and live in a in a kind of way that is a little bit precarious. But more robust in a way that it's sort of like you can handle strange transient events. And he says most people today, and this is maybe a result of the industrial revolution, is that we've become hyper-optimized. We've sort of assumed that things happen in a very regular fashion when in fact they don't. And so his whole trading strategy was expecting this like really bad event. So you would, instead of making a little money every day, you would lose a little money every day. He would just have this this program running, if you will, where he lost money and then he just made it all back up in one huge event. And for clarity as well, when he was doing losing little bits of money every day, what he was doing is buying completely out of the money puts or call options in the stock market. So effectively saying, look, I expect that there's going to be one day when the market's going to crash 30% or 20% or whatever it was. Right. It's unlikely that things things don't go pop up in, in vertical in the stock market. It tends to go up slowly like a staircase, but it falls precipitously like an elevator shaft. That's the, the old adage is like markets go up the stairs and go down the elevator. So his point is that most people were programmed, not most, like 99.9% .9 of people were programmed to just climb the stairs and nobody was really planning for the elevator. And so all he did was he's like, you know, said, look, the odds are stacked in the wrong way. And I'm not an expert on any of that, but my point is simply that he he just had a very contrarian view on what he called black swans events, which are black swans do exist. They're very rare and they're very unpredictable, but they do happen. And that was the thing that most, he said, most risk management didn't take that into consideration. Now he took this idea, made a lot of money, like we said, but then he actually started to use this as a lens to explain a lot of the odd things about society, a lot of the odd things also about governments, about monetary policy, about how we educate our youth. And so there's been this years-long process now in, in collection of volumes that he's written in Certo, which kind of says probability is ruling the world, and we are not equipped to understand the probability the way it really is. We have mismatched our models. The best way he described it was in Black Swan, where he talked about he gave the framework of thinking about extremistan and mediocristan. And mediocristan was like where you know what the bounds are of, of a particular probability set. So get a thousand people into the room and measure their heights and there's going to be a there's going to be a bell curve in terms of distribution of heights. And that's a predictable, we know what the bounds of that are. Even if you've got somebody who's six meters tall over the entire bound of all probabilities, you know, that one's going to be an outlier, but it's not going to throw off the entire set. Versus if you got a thousand people into the room and you said, let's measure their wealth. If you had Bill Gates in the room, it would throw off everything because that one example would throw out the mean, the median, everything. Yes, he points out that these rare examples, if you multiply them by the consequences of that happening, you're going to get an imbalance. The really important part about that, though, is that we think the world is like mediocristana. In other words, we think that we know what the bounds of, of, of the potential outcomes are. And so we apply our risk modeling to that, whereas actually the world is typically more like the world where the potential bounds of possibility are completely outround, outside of the bounds of what we think about. And so we don't include it in our modeling. Let me actually segue quickly into micromobility because this was one of the things that led me to, to believe in micromobility so much. 
the world thinks that transportation is a normal distribution, that somehow we kind of have an average distance that we travel and half the distances are less and half the distances are more. And that mentality that everything, every distribution is symmetric, bell-shaped, and therefore somewhat predictable and understandable, we kind of have our, get our heads around probabilities that way. That is not reality. The things about trips and distances is that they're log normal, so they're actually very heavily skewed. And this actually is not, is you brought up wealth in Bill Gates, actually family wealth is also non-Gaussian, it is a log normal distribution. A lot of things in, in society and in nature are not this Gaussian curve. And this is why we don't teach ourselves to think in this domain of skew, especially because the skew is is logarithmic. And this is why it's nonlinear. It's it's essentially hard to get your head around anything nonlinear. Now we have a, a virus which is nonlinear and we, we're having a, a trouble with, you know, one day it's it's a thousand and the next day is five thousand and the next day is more than ten thousand. We can't get our heads around how could this grow so fast? Because because it is nonlinear. And I think part of his worldview has been that this is where, where I think this is the polemical aspect of it is that he thinks that the, you know, the country bumpkin gets this more than the, you know, than the tenured academic. There's a, a failure of those who are well-educated to be impartial, partially educated. They're imperfectly educated and actually makes them worse than being uneducated because you, you tend to think you know more than you do. And those who are ignorant are sort of just trusting their instinct. And I think there's this other eminent thinker, I forgot his name right now. The two of them had a had a chat together I was watching on YouTube. He wrote something called Think Fast and Think Slow versus Think Slow, where basically the, the instinct versus the debatable deduction where the, that tension between the way we think is instrumental to a lot of the ways decisions are made by people. That's right. But Kahneman was also one of the biggest in the behavior economic space as well. Exactly. And by the way, Taleb is a big fan of that thinking, apparently. And so the two of them were having this, this dialogue about their points of view. Yeah. Can I just make one, one really quick point here, which is that I, I think you're mischaracterizing what Taleb was saying around uneducated. What he, what he was saying is there's a difference between like being intellectually intelligent and being street smart. And he uses it in one of his books. He talks about this idea of Fat Tony. And Fat Tony is like this uneducated guy, but he's it's a character that he's created, but effectively saying, look, I'm just watching what everybody else is doing and I'm betting against them because I think most people are stupid. And that's a sort of, that's a characterization, I think, more of street smarts than it is of, it's the ability to be able to say, I'm watching what's going on in the world and I'm, I'm just sort of paying attention to the street rather than having a very particular set of ideas about how things are meant to be. I'm just watching what's happening. Yes, and some, you know, then you have, he's basically, Fatoni's an empiricist. He sort of just observes the world and doesn't need to have a theory. And it says, basically, look, I'm just looking at the world probabilistically, and I have intuition. Whereas, you know, someone who may may have formulated a set of theories would sort of maybe be, again, you're right, I, I might be mischaracterizing, but I sense through his conversations, dialogue, and so on, that that he has a certain contempt for those who are, as you said, intellectual by idiot. So let's just step back a little bit. Again, we're, it's very tempting to keep digressing, but the thing about it is that there is this fundamental key point about the black swan, the event that fools us, because we're lulled into a sense of 
security or safety, and we uh, optimize for a world that doesn't have any major downsides. So one of the things that he's been talking about with, with respect to the current crisis is that globalism is fundamentally flawed, or rather it is it has an Achilles heel, because it is so fundamentally optimized. Like you have supply chains, you have things which are done not at just at arm's length, you're, you're multiple arm's lengths away. And yet, you know, so it's held together like a, you know, a spider web, but it's very intricate spider web. And on a daily basis, it works fine. But then when you have a catastrophe, and, and it could be a number of things, it could be an oil shock, you know, you could have a few bad actors who happen to be powerful, just poking into the spider web and, and causing a lot of crashes. His idea is like, okay, well, the way to cope with this is not to just become simpletons and make no connections, but rather to have self-healing systems which are able to detect interference and work around it. So for example, this world of the internet was grew up because the internet was was designed to route around problems. And if you don't know this, the history goes back to the Cold War when the U.S. government said, well, we have computer networks, and this existed before the internet. There were many, many computer networks. And they said, well, what would happen if some nodes in the network went down due to a nuclear attack? So what happens if we, could we still get messages across the country if, if let's say, St. Louis was bombed? And so they, they sat down with, again, academic type thinkers that sketched a way to send messages with essentially packets, meaning packet routing and that you have these intermediate machines called routers that send a message around without knowing quite what the circuit is you know how do you get a to b it's not a direct line it's it's kind of random the messages get distributed and they get re, re recollected together that entire logic was really about survivability and about being able to heal heal a network and route around problems and so the logic is underneath the internet in sense and there are other systems over the years which either have been engineered to be robust or being able to absorb damage but also things which naturally grew that way and so I think he celebrates those things which exist naturally and says that this is why my observation, maybe he doesn't agree with me, he doesn't agree that cities are anti-fragile, maybe he... No, no, he does. Cities are anti-fragile, but it's only because of the churn, because there are the things that are... And, and he gives the examples of like restaurants, right? So restaurants, restaurants will exist because there is a job to be done of restaurants that are there. And even if individual restaurants go down, so even if we have a decimation of the entire restaurant industry in the US right now, because it will end a lot of places around the world, because they only had two weeks of cash supply and they've all been laid off for three months because of everybody's on lockdown, they will reemerge because restaurants reemerge because they are a job to be done and they will exist. And cities build up around these things as well. That's a good observation from a demand point of view. And I, I, you know, I observed that cities simply just pick themselves up and dust themselves off and carry on, even though they may have been completely destroyed. And, and the other thing that I get comfort from, because I did kind of read or watch a lot of history, and when I see the horrors that have been endured, I've been reading recently about Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, this grand city that was the wealthiest city in the world for a thousand years, and today is actually the largest city in, in Europe. And, you know, it was founded something like 330 AD and was finally conquered by the Ottomans only in 1453. And so it was over a thousand, 1100 years that it was a very powerful state. It still exists, but it, it kind of had to go through this crisis. But the point is, if you look at 
not just that city. You you look at Rome, you look at Paris, you look at Berlin, you look at London. And so everybody knows about the London Blitz, but gosh, that was really traumatic. I mean, not only did they get bombed by conventional bombs, but they got bombed by, by missiles, including thousands and thousands of essentially cruise missiles. And these, these V2 bombs, which were actually rockets going up into space in, in, in 1940s and coming straight down on you without any warning. Nobody could hear them. Nobody could see them. And so the south of England was under this terror of potential bombs exploding at any time with no warning for five, six years. And so how did people cope? And of course, it's continental Europe going through occupations, going through saturation bombings by the American and British bombers, which which caused firestorms, literally entire cities becoming massive fires. Then, of course, the nuclear bombs, but even the non-nuclear attacks were even more more destructive to human life than the nuclear attacks. And so just a quick footnote, everybody knows about D-Day. D-Day, amazing story of the Allies invading and Normandy in France and thousands of Americans and British soldiers and Canadians as well perished on those beaches and thousands of Germans as well. On the other side, we, we talk about the, those battles, but nobody talks about the fact that 20,000 French people were killed in the D-Day invasion because of bombings that took place. And that's actually much higher death toll than the soldiers on the ground. And it was because they simply were unintended victims, right? I mean, the bombings were not meant for the French people. Obviously, it was the Allies who were bombing, but they, they were caught in their homes. And this is so painful and to, 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 to read all these stories about, about civilian deaths. And yet, they all came back, all of these cities that we know of. And it's very hard for me to find a city that suffered due to war, sieges, or other sort of man-made horrors, or even pathogens, even if you have a plague of some kind. There are examples, and this is where I, I think I think the, uh, the studying the cities that did disappear is more interesting because we kind of say, okay, let's find out what is the pattern for cities that do disappear. So you have we we have uh, Mount Vesuvius, which Pompeii, right, and and uh, one or two small towns around Pompeii that did actually get completely wiped out, and they get simply buried, and they could not recover because they were on a soil that was well, the entire town was smited. Yeah, there was nobody there. Yeah, they would, but you can't rebuild on on volcanic ash, so it's not like I'm sure if they could have dusted it off and then sort of you know, gone back because it was a good location, people would go back. But simply that is one type of event. Or you have something like a, a tidal wave or a volcanic or, or other types of eruptions that completely wipe out. And finally, so these are known catastrophes, but there is also things like that happen in, in the Mesoamerica. So this is the Central America, South America, which is the, the Colombian era when you had pathogens that essentially killed the local populations. But people have been studying those civilizations for decades now and say it wasn't just the fact that the, the Europeans came with diseases, but also there were probably weather events due to El Nino, which caused some dramatic food supply issues for some of these civilizations, which caused them to also fail. And that's why we have these hidden cities in the jungles of Central America that we're only now discovering. And maybe there's one or to in Asia under the uh, similar circumstances. So, so yes, climate change and potential natural disasters have wiped out cities, if not civilizations, but these are still not the sort of 
massive cities that we have, we've had recently. So those are the exceptions that sort of define the rule. The fact of the matter is that cities are quite resilient. And so you have to ask, just on the basis of a body of evidence, what is it that makes cities so robust? And this is without uh, Taleb's theory, but just understanding that, wow, we're pretty resilient. And not only that, but we bounce back and we get stronger. So so that's why I wrote the pieces I did. I, I cited Taleb's because I like... This is the piece about cities that has just come out, which I'll also link to in the show notes. Yes. So I said, basically, in, in Latin, the title says cities always win. The idea is that it looks like cities have this ability to pick themselves up and, and, and carry on. And now more and more people are citing the fact that cities are on their own now and the central governments are failing while cities are picking up and figuring out how to how to cope a lot better because they are kind of closer to the ground and, and they're marshalling resources and everything else. So we are moving into being coming an urban civilization. We are an urban species. And so that that is why I focus so much on, on the question of the city. And I, I use Taleb's theory to kind of illustrate, I think he, he captured this idea, which again, as Christensen before him, also captured an idea that pre-existed them. They didn't invent disruption or anti-fragility. They just gave them a name. Clay gave the name of disruption and saying this is weird phenomenon of David Goliath. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That there are there are companies that come along that are able to outwit the bigger, more the one that you'd think would win. Exactly. So how do great companies fail is the subtitle. So you have this this strange phenomenon, which again pre-exists and is a biblical story about the fact that the the underdog wins asymmetrically. And then you have the same kind of capturing. And one of the things I, I, I heard Taleb say is that he said that that all I did is I he put a word on a phenomenon that was so common and yet had no word. We don't have anti-fragility as a word. We we this is why I also use the phrase if it doesn't kill me, it makes me stronger. It makes me stronger. Yeah, which is definitely way that he he described it. And I, I think probably useful as well to just describe the kind of concept of anti-fragility, which is that as Taleb has laid out in, in the book Anti-Fragility or Anti-Fragile, which is that oftentimes people think of things like a washing machine. They're like a machine that things, you know, you input something into the machine, you input power, you like if it's a washing machine, you input power and you input clothes and out come clothes. But if, and they, they will work within kind of a bounded set of volatility. So it can withstand a couple of shakes and all that sort of stuff. And if there's an earthquake, it'll probably survive. And if you put a little more power into it, a little less power into it, it'll probably be fine. But if we overload the amount of power, or if there's a large amount of shaking, then the machine will break and then it won't work anymore. Versus something like a cat or an animal which can expose itself to a large amount of volatility up to a certain point, break and still repair itself and be able to be resilient in the face of that. And that we oftentimes think of things like economies, for example, as being highly tuned machines that are like machine, you know, like a washing machine, for example. But actually, in actual fact, a lot of these things that we think of, we've, we've expected our will to turn into a bunch of machines, but a lot of them will break. And actually, we need to be looking at how do we build systems that are resilient and able to repair themselves over time. I mean, that's exactly what you've said, but I'm just putting it in a layman's terms. There's so many examples that I used the example of muscles and bones. The fact that, and even our minds, they don't get stronger unless you train them, unless you, you exercise. And we're, we're, we're completely aware of no matter who you are, how old you are, or where you come from, you know that if you exercise, you get stronger. You know that if you train your mind, it gets stronger too, intellectually. 
And so you you kind of have built in this logic of let's drill and practice and repeat and memorize and so on in order to strengthen. It's not a crazy idea. It's something we all live with every day. We're completely accustomed to it. And yet when you look at systems, the only way we think that they get stronger is if they become more rigid, if they become more surrounded by armor or walled cities, you know, just kind of keep the bad things out, that makes it stronger. But in fact, what makes something stronger, even a complex system, especially a complex system, is if you actually beat up on it, if you actually pound it, it bounces back. And it, each time it bounces back, it gets even more resilient. And so that we don't build things that way. And this is when I actually brought this topic up years ago, actually, with respect to Apple in, in my other podcast and other, my other life as an analyst, which is that, you know, I said that I suspected that Apple had the anti-fragility character. And this became a series of podcasts, and I sort of got into a lot of debates with people. And I was asked to present this material even in, in, in front of Wall Street people. And I said, you know, I'm not a scholar of Taleb. I, I don't know much about that theory, but I think there's something here where a company that is constantly being considered to be dead in the sense that the market is valuing it at what 10 PE sort of 10 10 4 PE sort of thing. Yeah, and they, but it was it was like if you googled Apple is doomed you get tens of thousands of hits and it's been doomed for decades and so it's it's kind of like a, it's kind of a, become a joke but the fact is that that everything that happens people say it's going to affect Apple worse. So yes, we have a virus. Obviously Apple's going to be a big loser here. Or we have unemployment statistics. Well, obviously, Apple's going to be the big victim here. So, another matter. So, whether it's a new product that's launched by some Chinese company, or whether Hollywood decides to do something, it's always Apple that's the victim. That's fascinating to me. When when you decide to be the lightning rod, when people ascribe to a, a single company to be sort of the absorber of all harm in the world. Boy, I tell you, if you survive that, you must be really special. And so now, of course, some of that is to do with people wanting to say something and Apple is so famous that you say it about them and you get more clicks. But there is, you know, this happens so frequently, though, that when I do talk to people who are professional investors, they just simply believe that Apple is one foot in the grave no matter what. So it isn't only just clickbait. So I got this notion about, you know, maybe there are companies that are actually set up to be more resilient because they're able to take abuse, because they're always looking over their shoulder. And it was also Andy Grove who said only the paranoid survive. And so he had this built-in notion that you got to be always assuming you're going to fail. And by the way, Grove was a big fan of Clay. And I think Grove would be a big fan of Taleb if, if he were still around. So there's also a, then a, just another observation around how Apple have handled themselves as well, which is I remember there was that period when Apple had $250 billion in cash. I mean, they still have $250 billion in cash, but it was like there was a point at which they were building the most gigantic war chest. And everybody on Wall Street was like, this is an incredibly inefficient use of cash. And yet I think in some ways, a lot of that came about from, I mean, if you look at the kind of the come, the, the near-death experience that the Apple had gone through in 97 and through early 2000s, it was like, we do not ever want to let, it, let ourselves be in that situation again. And right now, it looks like an incredibly prescient decision to have such a large cash bound. Yes, you're right. It was because 
Steve Jobs had near-death experiences personally and, and also as, his, uh, you know, the companies he's, he's, he's lived with. Christensen, by the way, also has this great phrase, be hungry for profit, be patient for growth, which is a contrary position to most of the risk profiles of startups who are heavily venture-backed because the, you know, the idea is growth, 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 and, and we can wait for profits later. But when you get a downturn, it doesn't even have to be as severe as, as a virus, but it's sort of like just a cyclical business downturn. Suddenly, people who would give you money wouldn't give it to you anymore because they're sort of watching for their well-being. Their aversion to risk suddenly appears. And, and so because you haven't reached profitability, suddenly you're out of luck. So a lot of what Taleb says is that, and this is back to the question of MBAs in general, like MBAs are trained to optimize. They're trained to find the next tweak that can get a business to be a little bit better, a little bit more efficient, a little bit more return on something, right? This is the search for the numerator and the denominator, sort of that somehow success is defined as a ratio. It's like, you know, a return on something, on capital, on assets, on investment. And yet what matters is cash, which doesn't have uh, denominator. It is simply a number by itself. You can't take a ratio to the bank. You can't spend a ratio. You can only spend cash. And this is why, and sometimes, and this was one of the things that Clay would say, is that the great Asian companies that disrupted a lot of what Western businesses were doing in the 80s, especially and 90s, those companies were, again, these naive management, which didn't know these ratios, didn't know optimizations. They just stuck to the to their knitting. They just tried to make things better and were heavily constrained. And as a result, they actually ended up succeeding where everybody else was optimizing. So this, this notion, and I, I remember when I was working with Clay, I said, you know, the, one of the problems with efficiency innovations in general, which is, so we categorize things like disruptive innovation versus versus sustaining and sustaining innovations often are efficiency innovations, meaning you make things a little bit better. And the problem with efficiency in general is that it only gets you 100% at most. I mean, you're probably never going to get more than 20%, but you've got a quantity and you're trying to make it go longer. And that means that, you, you know, you, you've got a finite, and this is also in options theory, you've got a finite upside and you've got an infinite downside, and you don't want to be in that situation. You want to be the opposite. So it's all kind of interconnected, options theory, disruptions theory, and in some ways, anti-fragility. And though no one's quite put them together, I think that- No, I quite agree, Horace. I've been waiting for you to do it. Woohoo! We're finally almost there. <laughs> I'm humbled, but when I hear these great thoughts and I hear these great theories and I, I kind of, all I can do is step back and see patterns between them and, and commonalities and, and in sort of how these things can be interweaved. One thing I did do years ago was to combine disruption theory with diffusion theory. Diffusion theory is the S-curve, the early adopter, late adopter, that whole thing. And it turns out that that has a very, very, it's actually symmetric with, with disruption theory. They happen to be at different stages of the life of, a, of an industry and they're, they're exact opposites to one another in terms of customer sequencing, et cetera. So I've sort of pitched this as a theory that can be built into a series of papers. And I was going to talk about it at length. I kind of got distracted by multimobility as I was about to do that. But the idea that 
with Taleb's worldview, and I don't know what even to call his whole body of work, but the idea that you have a black swan or, or anti-fragility or skin in the game, all of these are, are reflections on the asymmetry in risk. And in many ways, when you read him, it's like all about, oh my God, the, the world is really just this giant probability engine and we're not equipped for it. Yeah. Can I, can I make a suggestion? So, so the connection that I can see is that, as you say, the pursuit of the ratios in a traditional MBA education, which is sort of like what has ended up with our, you know, like what we think of as traditional management or the kind of like capital efficiency, financialization of all of these different sectors of business in order to be able to generate returns on capital, hasn't taken appropriately into account downside risk. Because they're, they're effectively, they've said, look, we can make all these things a lot more optimized and efficient without taking into account the fact that you do not need to have cash buffers or whatever to be able to protect your downside risks of business because we haven't been able to accurately account for risk because we don't have a way of measuring these events that may come along. Say, for example, you were running an airline for the last 10 years and you said, wow, we've been making record profits. What we're going to do is build a gigantic cash pile. Well, at the moment, if you were to try and do that in the market, the market would have severely discounted you because you would have been inefficiently using your cash, you wouldn't have been able to generate returns because everybody's looking for stock buybacks, especially amongst your peers in the US, for example. And so as a result, you would not have been rewarded in the market, quote unquote. And yet the backstop to all of that is now they're all screwed, except they, I mean, they may, they'll be able to make it out with a bailout, but it's like... Yeah, I call it the miseducation of several generations of, of business managers. They've been miseducated that they need to optimize for returns to shareholders that is an invention of the 1970s literally that was not did not exist previous to that and certainly there was a paper that was written i think from the chicago school of economics which was that you know shareholder returns are the ultimate measurement of success in business previous to that you had crazy ideas like the ultimate success of a business is having satisfied customers this is the deming school and I think, you know, Christensen belongs to that. I don't know if I could even ascribe the entire business of Harvard Business School being in that camp, but the ideas were that, you know, sound management was about creating customers, preserving customers, satisfying customers, and not so much shareholders, which actually are one of the stakeholders, but not the primary ones, because if the customer is not satisfied, the shareholder is not satisfied. So you're sort of putting the cart before the horse. So for a few generations, they've been educated in this idea that we need to get this return on share. That's the ultimate success. And 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 now we, there are a few iconoclasts out there who are trying to break that. But that is indeed a miseducation, not just of the managers, but the investors and the, those investors who, who are running pension funds, who are, by the way, doing it as not their money. It's not, it's not their skin in the game. It's kind of their, their fiduciaries. They're responsible for a fund. And if it goes bad, they don't lose very much. And that's, again, another, another aspect of the, of the problematic nature of professional money management. Because of that, the whole system is in a state of misallocation, misallocating risk and misallocating capital. And you have people with great ideas not being funded and people with terrible business plans and, and terrible economic impacts or environmental impacts getting all the money because we've got this thing incorrectly quantified. I do want to come back to this, which is, so one, 
what are the implications for disruptive innovation theory vis-a-vis -vis the ideas that Taleb is putting forward? And then the second is, how do we think about this in relation to micromobility? Because I, I have a couple of ideas about how we can think about this in relation to micromobility. But let's go through the, if you were to look at it and say, Taleb's got a bunch of ideas that are great around risk and risk miscalculation. How does that impact how we think about disruptive innovation theory? What would you say? I think that the the two, as, as as I hinted before, the two are rather well related. Because when I was feeling my way around the innovators' real dilemma, not just on the product level, but sort of as a, as a, what is the purpose of the firm level? What is the purpose of innovation in a firm? When you look at that, you you realize that hey, your hands are tied by the fact that people don't understand. Those who don't understand are your board, are your investors possibly even your direct reports. So people under you may rebel, people over you may rebel. So even if you're the CEO, you're not free to do the right thing. Even if you understand the theory, if you believe and, you know. You can calculate the risk accurately of being disrupted, for example, you mean? Yeah, you can preach and you can, you can understand and say, hey, we're about to get disrupted. This is what we need to do. And you're not allowed to do that. When I came to that realization, I sort of asked myself, well, how do you create a organization that is able to do the right thing? How do you get rid of these constraints of miseducated people who have claims on your business? And so one of the things I explored was, was private versus public. Are we actually organized correctly was a public company where basically that gives the responsibility of governance to people who do not have skin in the game. It's almost like impossible to have skin in the game when when you have overseers that are are not vested primarily. They're sort of quote unquote professional, but they're really just rent seeking. So there was this question of going back to the family business, and I think this is one of the things Taleb would probably agree with. That saying that you know the the private family oriented organized. And by the way, that doesn't mean small because if you look at the, the giant chaebols in in Korea, the the keiretsus, or at least they used to be in Japan. These were family-owned businesses, and there are billion-dollar enterprises also in parts of the developing world. In India, for example, these are family-controlled giant corporations, which are multi—you know—they're they're multiple sectors, they're conglomerates. But those who are in charge are primarily they're bound by family ties. So there's there's that question in my mind. But how do you preserve a family structure for more than one or two generations, which actually is very problematic? So there's this question of longevity. In Japan, they just adopt them. <laughs> they find the new CEO and then they adopt them into the family. That's right. So there's the way of bringing blood into the business, fresh blood into the business, even though it isn't genetic. So there's these questions around governance and the way you structure. The other thing that, that Christensen brought up is like, what if we use different forms of, we tend to divide between equity and debt. What if we use royalty a capital, which is a very strange idea, but it's actually very common in entertainment businesses. It's also common in illegal enterprises, for example, and I, I told him this because he didn't know, but I said, if you look at the way organized crime is, is, is organized, the questions about equity, the questions about being a partner in the business, it's not blood, although that's part of it. It's not the only way. There are these questions about who vouches for who, how do you make sure that someone gains partnership over a period of, of service and apprenticeship, and that you cannot leave. This is a very important thing, that the idea that once you're in, you can't get out. And this seems 
Yeah, I was going to say, you don't leave because you will be killed. <laughs> but again, they created a construct. It's, this, is, this is a very important governance construct. And it, yes, it is illegal, but we, why is it that we cannot use that model? Probably because, again, people have, we have contractual and, and you know, there are rules and regulations about freedoms and so on and so on that we would not make it very practical. But maybe we can build something along those lines. And again, in the royalty model, by the way, everything in, in Hollywood is about relationships. And when you think about what deals really consist of there, it's like, okay, am I buying into this idea? Am I therefore going to, when I agree to be a part of something, it's a part of me. And so there's this very close bond. And I'm very amazed by how deals are made in Hollywood. And it's all about relationships. And it's all about, and it's perfectly legal. It's all based also on a lot of contract law. But but you don't end up with corporations. You know, a, a movie is a partnership. And so the questions about how to build these things and then having that framework also come back together and break apart continuously so that things can be built. And then those things which are built are then sold and then they carry on. And, and you have a movie as a product that lasts forever. And it's, it's, it's amazing how that, that was built. I'm, I'm fascinated how it's put together, how it's sold, how it's created, and then how it's preserved and can, carries on. Now, again, that's in the sense of, of having artistic creative works. And so that industry figured itself out. It did not read a book on how to do that. It was possible to do so only after a century of kind of trial and error. But yet here we are. So we have examples of different ways of doing things than debt and equity. And so these are some of the things I explored at the time without thinking much about Taleb. And I think that what Taleb is kind of bringing is just zoomed out so far and say, hey, you know what? If we could look at the ancients, if you look at the human nature, if you look at your baker and you look at your plumber and you look at the, the average you know, person of skill or, or just hard work, they actually have kind of thought through these things a lot more than we who are supposedly great thinkers. And I admire that humility. I admire his his point of view on, and that's another thing they have in common. Christensen and Taleb were both fundamentally saying that humility is the secret ingredient, that at the end of the day, it's a prerequisite. And, and if you don't have it, it's probably you're not going to make it. So it's one of those things, and not to say Taleb personally seems doesn't seem very humble, but maybe he is, I don't know. Intellectually, I think he's quite humble. I think so too. I think he, because of the skin in the game theory is that he, he says, basically, I'm going to state my point and I'm, I'm going to put my name behind it. I'm going to try it as best as I can to prove it. I'm right, maybe mathematically so. And I'm going to be arrogant once I've proven it. If you prove me wrong, I'll stand up and say mea culpa. But it's important to, to not be self-effacing when you're right, when you have absolute confidence but at the same time, own up to mistakes. And, and he, he's been asked a few times, and this is where also you take the measure of the man. He's been, and I, I was listening to a, an interview he did on the podcast, and he said, so the interviewer asked him, what mistakes have you made? And he said, interesting, one of his responses was that he too, like I started this conversation, he said he was seduced by some great thinkers, and he found them to be later he was fooled. And so basically he deflected. He said, I'm not, I didn't make a mistake. I'm only, my only mistake was trusting others. But generally that's also a sign of someone who's got his priorities straight. So it's to, to also sort of think about what you, where you could be wrong. Again, the problem with polemicism is that they, if you really is only study Taleb, 
you might assume that that's the answer to all the world's problems, but you have to understand that he has a probabilistic view, which I think complements nicely with a disruptive view, which complements nicely with, let's say, a Schumpeter view of creative destruction. When understanding the, the scope of how civilization develops, how humanity works, it's realized that, that all these guys providing different lenses to the same world, but you kind of are able to see it more clearly because you're looking through those lenses. And it starts to resonate more and more because based on personal experience, maybe at the end, it's like you also have a moral compass, you also have a, an ethical point of view, and all of these things combine to cement your decision making. And that's what I love about his work. And just, I would say it's wonderful complementary stuff to a lot of what we've been thinking. And I think it's, it's something we should leverage as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Finally, wanted to discuss. So if you were to say, based on these ideas that, that we've been discussing, what would be the implications for micromobility as you see it as an industry and as a sort of as a, as a mode of transport? From the very beginning, I've, I've asserted that micromobility was a disruption, and that meant you know classic low-end disruption. Just go through the checklist. It's the job to be done is well understood in terms of miles versus uh, and smiles versus vehicle to sell. The asymmetry with large and powerful, small and weak is perfect. The ability to leverage R and D from others, so it's very modular as opposed to requiring a moonshot. So you have you don't have to really invent a huge amount of breakthrough product. You're kind of just picking up pieces and, and putting them together. It's very successful in gaining traction, if not profits, but it certainly was something that resonated with a lot of people early on, and, and, and it still will as we move forward. So there's a lot of it was great as a, that's where I come from, disruption mainly. But if we look at, at the Taleb's work, which is, I don't think it's as, Taleb's work, it doesn't really tell you much as an entrepreneur what you should do. He's more about protecting yourself. It's more about saying, hey, this is what you do to manage your business going forward. And I think Christensen also, there's a lot of, there's a lot of descriptive and little prescriptive. Great stories are typically, they don't tell you. And it's like you go to meet the guru on the mountain. He doesn't tell you what the answer to your problems is. He'll tell you, you have to simply look inside yourself. And that's always been true in every culture, in every generation, that the solutions are, are to be found within. So they, these great gurus do not give answers, but they do help you think. So in that sense, also, I think Talib work is think about the probabilities of events like the one we're experiencing, but also think about how can you step up and give more and be less focused on a positive every day. Maybe, and one of the things, by the way, he says is that entrepreneurs are fundamentally these options traders who are looking for a big upside with limited downside. And so they're, they're losing, 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 and then there's a big break, hopefully, to where you get paid. And even if you don't, you try again and again and again, so you're always going to try new businesses, hoping for a large payoff. And he, he tells people, follow that, as opposed to go to get a job to hope for stability forever. The best thing you can do, he says, is start a business. That is the most virtuous thing one can do as a citizen. That's also inspiring, I think. I was going to say, out of the, I mean, so one, he's a champion of entrepreneurs. And I think his whole point is like, the entrepreneurs are the ones with the skin in the game. So we need to be supporting them. I don't think there's anything in guidance there in particular for entrepreneurs. But from a system-wide perspective, I really like his... Look, ultimately, even if every restaurant tomorrow disappeared, restaurants would emerge three days later. 
and and that's true for micro exactly so and it's the same exactly this is exactly so so as of today there's rumors going around i don't know if it's true but there are rumors going around that lime is going to be raising at a 400 million dollar valuation so they're looking for more fundraising they were at a 2.4 billion dollar valuation last time that would be an 80 percent correction i don't i don't have anything to confirm or deny any of that stuff but i do think that there's sort of they would definitely be doing a down round if they were to raise again. Birds just laid off 400 people. But I look at all of these and think, even if all of these companies disappeared, what we have is a really solid supply chain that's now sort of worked out that this is an idea and it's a concept that's going to work. You have cities that are accepting of the idea of scooters and you have a lot of people who are saying, I want to be in a city and I want to get around and I don't want to sit inside a tra- public transport network where I can be at risk of these, you know, inter- you know, effectively transfer of these diseases and all that sort of stuff. And you're going to have reallocation of space on the streets, I think, coming. You've already have emergency bike lanes emerging and things like that. And I think that that is going to... Someone had actually tweeted out a supposed criticism to you and I and Micromobility Inc. that we shouldn't be focused on supply chains and factory, you know, talk to factory as a meetup that's forthcoming. He said, this feels a lot like the dot-com era for micromobility. So we should be focusing on tactics and day-to-day survival tactics. And to that, I was res- I would respond by saying, that is a great one of the greatest confidence builders out there that we are like in the dot-coms, because look what happened. Yes, there were a huge number of failures, but from those emerged the five largest companies in the history of the world, the Google, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, and Apple, right? These are, these are now known as the FANG group, right? Or they used to be called the Four Horsemen or whatnot. But this whole idea is that these are the gorillas now. That's 20 years later. And even in the early 2000s, it was pretty clear that Amazon was not just a survivor, was going to be just a, you know, a dominant player. Google, again, by 2004 and five, was pretty clear Google was going to win the world with search. And you know this was pre-iPhone, pre-Apple as a dominant player. But there were some survivors out of the dot-com era that just completely, completely changed the world. And they were just survivors. There were many failures. Now, back to Lime for a second. Yes, there's a down round. There's a lot of pain. Arguably, though, again, I don't want to pick on anyone in particular, but the, the arguably there was overinvestment. There was. We've been saying this for months that there's there's been probably a, 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 a hype cycle that was overhype and that the Gardner hype cycle does not follow the S-curve. And the S-curve may just have been given a nudge because of the crisis, it could have been also. It could be also that we're seeing a slight acceleration. We're seeing an offset in time, but probably a steeper curve once it does pick up again. Because cities, again, if cities survive, and I think they will, if cities are stronger than ever, and I think they will be, and people ask themselves, "How am I going to get around in cities?" The first fundamental physics apply: smaller is better, smaller is faster, smaller is cheaper. And fundamentally, it's more accessible. So you you have all the positives of micro still present, whether people are post-crisis or not. And I think some of the minor issues, and this came up in our Triple M call, whether hygiene is going to change our thoughts or our, our, our ways of behavior... I'm kind of on the fence on that. I don't believe it will, but it, it might. So you have to prepare for that. But there have been 
all kinds of other scares before. Remember, the mobile phone was scaring people because people would get cancer. Wi-Fi was scaring people because people... And so we kind of had this electromagnetic hygiene issues for a long time. Prior to the crisis, we had people saying, well, we're too much screen time. This is terrible. Our children are suffering. They're not, they're, you know, they're going to get all kinds of handicaps because, and now we're, we're turning to our phones to save our lives. And so the vehicle that is, that made sense before, it makes sense during, it makes sense after. We might make different business models. We might organize differently. We might change the wheel diameters or who knows, a lot of things still will change. And the dot-com 20 years ago was all very different than we have today. We had we didn't have Web 2.0s. It wasn't about consumers authoring content. It wasn't about people generating their own content and sharing with each other, which was what social media created. That was much, much later. Social media was a 2010 phenomenon. We had still the early days always said, hey, computers can talk to each other pretty cheaply. And, you know, we still had dial-up and we moved quickly through fiber. We moved quickly to having everyone connected. And pretty soon that enabled the birth of the business models and the use cases and everything else, which got us to this point. So, you know, it's hard not to be optimistic. I'm sorry if I sound a little bit too much so, but, but boy, have we endured, boy, have we learned, and boy, have we changed so much of what of what the world looks like. Think about someone, actually, I didn't read the article. I just saw the headline. I think it was on the BBC website saying, what if this happened in 2005? What if this happened in 2005 with, and we had Razor phones or Nokia phones? We didn't have broadband to every home. The ability to do remote work as easily as we do now and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, completely. We didn't have Zoom and we, we, uh, we would have had a much different experience, you know, people stuffing videotapes or DVDs into their players instead of instead of streaming. And now we feel like we're having a hard time because we're sitting at home looking at any millions of con- you know, items of content that we... Yes, economically, it's going to be tough, but the, the, the governments are opening up their wallets because what they're doing basically is saying, hey, we can borrow and let's do that. And they're borrowing from the future. And if you believe that we're going to get out of this, then probably that's a safe, safe loan to make. Mm-hmm. Those are all conversations to have later because we're right up against time. This one's going to run over a little bit, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure most people won't mind. This, is, uh, this has been great content. Thank you very much, Horace. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for pushing me to do this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Excellent. And in the meantime as well, folks, if you, you did hear Horace reference it, but we do have the Triple M Micromobility membership. We've got some great content coming down the pipe. I'm hoping to have this out before Wednesday next week and Tuesday next week, in which we are going to be interviewing Tony Ho and Danielle, Tony from Segway, Danielle from Okai, about the supply chain of scooters in China and the production, how that's been impacted by coronavirus. And we have some great other content coming down the pipe as well. So head to micromobility.io to find out more about that and come join our webinars, etc. 